Hi, I'm Howard Tierski. Welcome to the Winning Digital Customers Podcast, where we focus on the stories of large-scale digital transformations told by the people who lead them. Welcome, everybody, to the Winning Digital Customers Podcast. I have another awesome guest, a friend who I've known for many, many years, who now works in the office of the CIO for Google, though he has been through a number of very, very interesting chapters in his career. He had spent time as an entrepreneur in residence at Citibank, experiencing what it's like to drive digital transformation in a large enterprise. He spent time running his own startups, and now at Google, he is offered to do for us on this podcast something that Google has him doing with only the top CXO of leading brands, which is to give briefings on what is the latest insights that Google has about how to drive most effective work from home, kind of future of work stuff in this area of COVID. So his job right now, and we'll ask him to perhaps give us a better explanation of it, but his job right now is going around and working with Google's customers to help support them and provide Google's best thinking around that. And he's going to give it as much as he can to us today in the time that we have on the podcast. So with that, Tejpal Bakya, longtime friend and somebody I've often admired, and I'm so pleased that you're on the podcast today. Let me turn it over to you, Tej, and ask you to introduce yourself and give us a little bit about your career journey, because it's just such a fascinating story. Howard, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to reconnect. I can't wait till we can do it in real life. Yeah. Uh, in person. This is real life. Uh, <laughs> I just have to remind myself every now and then. But uh, yeah, I can give you my career journey, which you know starts back actually when you and I first met. I got my career started in media, entertainment, technology. I was at ESPN. And this is probably the first time I had heard the term digital transformation. And it had a, a very different meaning back then. If you remember, that was for some companies literally meant putting a website up, meant digital transformation, you know. I think you and I connected a little bit more on like the streaming media side of things. ESPN had brought me in to launch a product called ESPN3. We rebranded as ESPN360, and then now it's back as ESPN3 and under the Watch ESPN umbrella. Uh, but that's really where I got my first kind of taste of being able to drive transformational change digital or not. In, in most of my cases, it's been digital mm -hmm. uh, at a big corporate. And in 2007, I left ESPN and started my entrepreneurial journey. I became a startup founder. I was a startup founder for 10 years, three different companies, uh, all three based here in New York, all three investor backed. One was in the photo sharing space. One was in the video chatting space. And the most recent one is in the educational technology space, K through 12 technology. And then in 2017, coincidentally or not so coincidentally in time when my son was born, I decided I wanted to stop being a startup founder and leverage everything I've learned and go back to big corporate. My first job after being a startup founder was, as you mentioned, it being an entrepreneur in residence at Citibank, particularly City Ventures. So the jump from startup to corporate was major shock therapy. Culture shock? Did you need yeah. a whole new wardrobe? <laughs> Interestingly, no. We, we were the guys and girls who were allowed to wear jeans, except for when we went to the 37th floor. But no, we were really brought in as this SWAT team, Tiger team, um, innovation team at Citibank. So I joked that it was a culture shock in terms of going from startup to, you know, a 200 year old, 200,000 person company and, you know, the original heritage company, kind of the old school New York finance company. And it was a shock. However, I was part of City Ventures, which is their corporate venture arm. It's this bubble of innovation and a different way of thinking, but mostly for investing externally mm -hmm. on Citibank's behalf. 
what they brought us entrepreneurs and residents in was to create a program inside Citibank where city employees, and when I say employees, I mean literally it could be managing director. There were several founders in our program that were you know, very senior at the company, all the way down to a teller at, at a branch. People working on the front line with customers, either um, consumer or institutional, who were seeing the problems out in the field. And they brought 12 of us EIRs across Silicon Valley, New York, London, Singapore to work with these employees and educate them on how to think more like startup founders. Cool. And at the same time, work with management and the C-suite at Citibank to enable that kind of agility. So you were there to create as much culture shock as you were actually experiencing. Yeah, literally. I mean, I remember, I won't say who, but my boss uh, said, you know, your job is to shake shit up. Mm-hmm. And we did, and we got in trouble. <laughs> but luckily, we were protected. And, and, and I'll go into a couple of tips that work, but we were protected from CEO down. It was definitely a very well thought out program. And for me, it was amazing on a few fronts. One is, as I mentioned, my background was in media. I had zero finance background. Mm-hmm. And half of the EIRs either worked in banking or had fintech startups. Half of us didn't. What we all had was multiple startups under our belt. So coming in as a startup person, asking dumb questions worked really well. And the learning curve was steep for me when it came to finance, but uh, I loved it. You know, from a subject matter standpoint, I never thought I could work in finance. And a lot of this was maybe stereotypes based on New Yorkers who work in finance. And many of those stereotypes are true, by the way. But the subject matter was fascinating. And when you take in digital transformation, the speed of innovation that's happening in the market, it was really interesting to see how this company was going to make that transformation. I was there for about a year and a half, and uh, then Google called me and brought me in in this role called uh, Startup Ecosystem Manager. So I summarized that role, and it was a little over two years of my job at Google as being an ambassador for Google out to the startup community, but more importantly, being an advocate for startups inside Google. And then in um, March timeframe of 2020, the CIO, the chief information officer of Google, who happens to be based in New York, had seen some of the work I'd done in the startup world and said, hey, could you help us with that kind of storytelling from an enterprise IT standpoint out to the world? And similar to how I had these kind of aversions to finance, I had all these aversions to IT as well. You know, I'm not an IT person. I'm a you know, media tech person. I'm an entrepreneur. And the way he framed it and, and my current manager framed it, and she actually is she's new to the org also. She comes from the marketing side. They said, hey, this is about storytelling. And you know what? Nobody in the world has ever told a story before. Yet every single person in the world can relate. We're all at home. We're all going through this together. And enterprise IT technology is literally the only medium for company culture to spread right now. And even when the offices come back, they're going to be some sort of hybrid setup. It's time to reimagine that future. And you can be the person who's creating that point of view. Yeah. And, it, and it really stuck. And that's how you, you and I have connected many, reconnected many times over the years, but also kind of with the work that you're doing, that's an area that plugged in between City Ventures and Google from a digital transformation side. You know, when I was at City Ventures, it was kind of a choice. And now, as of earlier this year, there is no choice. I think you may have even shared this. There was a meme going around what uh, triggered your digital transformation. And, you know, 10 out of 10 companies will say it was COVID. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's an amazing journey, and I want to get back to the, the Google side. But before we do that, I want to go back a little to the city side. I'd love to learn from you, what were the kind of most important learnings you had? So many of our listeners are at-large enterprises, and they're trying to drive digital transformation. They may not be an entrepreneur resident specifically, but they're facing the challenge of trying to, well, shake shit up. Yeah. 
at at large companies and they're getting in trouble, just like yeah. you did. What did you learn? What are the best tactics? Or maybe it's things that City was doing right in terms of how they set the program up, or things you learned in terms of how you were able to do things, or even the don't do's, things that you discovered, yeah, probably better not do that. That doesn't seem to work. Any of that would love your tips and tricks. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I can give you a couple of perspectives. I can give you the how do you set this program up for success? So let's say you're that head of innovation or transformation, you know, yeah. you're, you're not in the C-suite, you're also not, you know, entry level, but you've got to position this thing or whatever you're trying to push forward in a way that's going to get the best support possible. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not something I would have been aware of how to do before my role at City. And I can give you the perspective of how does a large corporation operate more like a startup. What I found in my last three to four years being back in corporate, much of my work um, as an EIR at City, as a startup ecosystem manager at Google, and now you know, in the office of the CIO, is educating corporate executives on how startup founders think. And it's a totally different mentality that may or may not work in big corporates, but is very much based on iteration and experimentation, which I think fundamentally corporations can build into these programs. Now, we know when it comes to getting your program funded, there's a lot of work that goes in, as does with startups, but it's very different. You got to get buy-in, you got to get consensus, stakeholders, depending on the culture of your company and your management chain. But there are ways to kind of instill that founder mindset into your company and your programs. So from the corporate standpoint, there's a couple of things that I think City did that really set the program up nicely. One is... They had top-down, bottom-up, and kind of lateral support across the company um, and across the globe. Now, the top-down is literally CEO, heads mm-hmm. of the unit. And as I mentioned, this program was part of City Ventures and was directly the responsibility of our chief innovation officer. And she did a phenomenal job of having that top-down support. Now, that top-down support alone will not work, right? The C-suite at Citibank is not identifying better ways to speed up the line at the branch. Not that they're not capable of it, but the decisions they're making are not, you know, at that level, nor are they seeing it every day. So this brings me to the second point where you need that bottoms up approach. So you need the people in the front line to want to be part of this program, to share those ideas. And that's a lot of internal marketing, positioning, uh, creating a nice vision, and then literally distributing that message across the globe, a 200,000 plus company. It's not easy to get that word out. So you really need, like I said, a top down, bottoms up. Now, where that lateral support also comes in is buy-in. So I'm going to use Citibank and the finance industry specifically. You need buy-in from the business unit heads. And I'll explain how City had done that. And that comes in, you know, hey, this is actually a problem we want to solve, a customer target we want to go after, something we want to fund. And that, that's really important. So getting their buy-in and the stakeholders early in the process of the ideation is very important. Mm-hmm. And then second, you know, being part of City Ventures under this group, there was a pool of money. We could seed these ideas without permission. And I don't mean don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. That There was some element of that, but a little bit of like, look, we're going to try 100 things. Most will not work, but that's okay. And the few that start to bubble up or show some evidence will get those business unit heads, stakeholders. And you know what? A lot of the ideas are coming from people within their unit as well. So I think kind of having those three areas of support really set the program up to succeed. And also kind of at the top levels, C-suite and then heads of the units, helping come up with themes, right? And this is something that EIRs did ourselves, but really getting their buy-in into changing social structures as a theme. You know, what does a family look like where banking was really built for the 1950s family Mm. in the US? You know, it's, it's very different now. Things like micropayments, alternative financing, all these other things that are happening. 
the shift of wealth from boomers to millennials, you know, largest shift in wealth in history. You right. know, these are, these are things that we could think out strategically. And these support. are things you're getting from those lateral business unit leaders. Is that right? They're, they're telling you these are the things that we're thinking about. Yeah. So you know, these are the kind of areas where there would be interested in investment and funding if yeah. you find a solution. And there was a method to teasing those out. You know, mm-hmm. we, we hosted full day uh, ideation sessions around mm-hmm. themes. And these were super fun. You and I actually, this is another time we'd reconnected uh, at your loft space. We would go off site, do a day of design thinking, kind of just forget everything you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A day of, hey, these are the problems. Let's hone in on what are the problems. And the third day, let's come out with high-level solutions themes. Some of those became businesses that would go through our program. But it was a way to really get cross-functional buying across the company. And again, you have a bunch of BIRs, some with background in finance, some not but really who don't have chips in the game in the sense that like I was a contractor, it was 18 months. I wasn't vying for promotion. I wasn't, you know, there was no politicking going on and I was bringing in experience and expertise that wasn't readily available inside the company. Mm-hmm. There's one other thing that a tip on the lateral side, specifically for finance is there are a lot of regulations in place and, you know, compliance rightfully so that is designed to prevent bad actors or bad situations from happening again. So you have to work with those systems. And sometimes, you know, people might think that those systems are there to stifle innovation, you know, and they're, and they're not, they're there to protect the consumer. Uh, And there's a way to work with them. And our CIO really did an amazing job with this was really a shift in mentality from no to how Mm -hmm. their job is to say no. And it should be to say no. We all as consumers of the banking industry want them to do that, but that doesn't mean you have to bring an idea to them at the moment of yes or no. You know, you can start getting them as stakeholders earlier on and say, hey, look, I'm not looking for a yes or no, but how do I make sure this doesn't become a no six months from now? Yeah. And those side effects that I talk about that came out of it, you know, a couple of businesses have made it out. Let's, let's hope it's a you know, success for the company. But it was a great employee morale and retention tool. People loved it. I mean, I was there for 18 months. We were called coaches internally. And I haven't been at Citibank working there for three months, but, you know, I actually do some work with them now through Google. And the last time this was, you know, January, but that I went to the headquarters on Granite Street, I'll walk in the lobby and people will still be like, yo, coach. And like, I'll, it's, we were rock stars inside the company. Did you wear a around your neck? <laughs> and uh, exactly. That's a good idea. I wish I had done that. But it, it was really good, you know. So like from the employee morale standpoint, it was great. My manager at the end of my term there, he had said, you know, if all we get out of this program is a faster path for products to make it to market, it's a win. And I can almost be certain with that kind of um, no to how mentality shift that we, we accomplished that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think every corporation is looking at startups from a few points of view. One is an existential point of view. Like, is this the company that's going to make us obsolete? Are we the next blockbuster video? You know, and that's, that's real. Yeah. Corporations are talking about this all the time. Second is, you know, at the size of certain industries like the banking industry, there's a common saying that fintech startups are the de facto R&D lab for the finance industry. Mm -hmm. They just can't innovate at that level, you know, or that speed. So they want to form those relationships out with the startup uh, uh, community. And I think a combination of this awareness and partnerships with external startups and internal innovation, this is where... I think digital transformation comes in. And one thing that was very clear throughout my experience at Citibank was 
there were groups that were exploring cloud infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And now banks have a lot of regulation and reason to maintain their data centers, even though I don't think that's actually good for anyone. By law, they have to do that. And they're slow to figure out how do we have this hybrid cloud, distributed cloud infrastructure. And while it sounds like very much an infrastructure decision, what cloud enables for enterprise is rapid product development. Developer happiness lets you innovate at a pace where you don't have to worry about certain things because you can create sandboxes, test things out and pull them out very quickly. And we were very tightly coupled with that group at Citibank. At Google, I, I continue to work with them amongst other things. But I started this conversation about, you know, digital transformation 20 plus years ago meant get a website up. And now it's kind of swung the other way where it's let's modernize our infrastructure. Mm -hmm. But there is actually something in the middle. Like, how do you get an app up? How do you get a new service up quickly and then pull it back if it's wrong or iterate and adapt on it? And the way current infrastructure is set up for a lot of these enterprises, it's not possible. Yeah, very interesting. I want to ask you one follow up question on this. And then I definitely want to talk more about the Google side here. You mentioned the idea that you were there to help the folks there get sort of in the mind of the CEO of a startup. Yeah. I'm curious, what aspects of the mind of the CEO of a startup really seemed beneficial and valuable and workable in the context of an organization like City? And were there some things that you'd say, yeah, this is an aspect of how uh, entrepreneurial you know, startup CEOs think that frankly doesn't align, was useful for the, the CEO of a startup, but not a, a tactic that would be useful to think that way as a, say, executive at a large bank? That's a great question. Actually, is a great segue into Google. One thing, you know, in my in this last corporate chapter of mine, where I've seen myself become an educator on is this mindset of the founder. And for better or for worse, you know, I wasn't a great founder, but I have my 10,000 plus hours, right? Like I, I was in here the whole time. Well, right. Sure. Yeah, probably a little too much in here. So I, you know, I've been refining this theme or this thesis. And at Google, I really solidified, I call it the essence of a startup. And what is it that fundamentally makes a startup different than a corporate? And the reason to understand this can be two ways. One, at, at Citibank, is very much to think more like a founder. At Google, it was very much about how do we get them, how do we add value to startups in the, in the ecosystem, particularly around cloud? So there's a couple of things to note about this. One, a startup, and I'll get to the founder mindset in a second. A startup is neither an enterprise nor a small business. So you can't treat it like a small business, right? A small business is a great business, but it's got a regular trajectory. Startups are binary, right? They either succeed faster or fail fast. It might take many years to get to that point, but you know, I said that. Second, they're not enterprises. They're not actually even businesses. They are experiments. They are literally, you're testing something out till you find a repeatable and scalable business model. Steve Blank has a quote about that, you know, with lean startups, but basically until it's a business, it's just a startup, right? It's, a, it's you're running these experiments and that's a really good thing. Right? That's something that corporations can learn from. They're like, okay, like, let's not judge this as a failure or success. It's neither, right? You know, let's, let's validate that our assumptions are correct or not correct. Let's actually try to not invalidate them and then move on. A yeah. um, couple of areas where the mindset doesn't necessarily work is startups are inherently risky, right? You've all heard the stats, 99% plus fail. And what's, what's interesting is if you look at series A funded, B funded, C funded, D funded, the numbers don't get that much better, right? right. Like, you know, you might be talking about a 70% uh, failure rate at series D and like, whoa, you hear all this news about the success, but they're pretty much, you know, destined to fail yet founders still choose to do them. So you have to understand that uh, startup founders are not rational people. 
right? <laughs> like they choose to do it despite the odds. They believe they're going to be that one or there's some calling that's so much greater than the odds for them. So that may or may not help a corporation out. And I'll explain where it does help because that was one of my talks that I gave a lot at Citibank. Where it doesn't align with a corporation is because of these odds and because it's such a resource constrained process, survival is key in the mindset of a founder. I call this the decision tree of death. Every decision you make as a founder is option A or your company fails. Not every decision that, but majority of decisions are that, but every decision feels like that. And startup founders make 15 of those decisions before breakfast every morning. At a corporation, executive can actually have the luxury to say, my job is to make three decisions every day, and I'm the best at making those three decisions. Founders don't have that luxury. So I think, you know, when working with founders, you need to understand that when you're trying to work like founders, you can actually have the best of the resources and security and safety with a mindset of both abundance and constraint, but really strong uh, focus on metrics and KPIs to know when a hypothesis is validated or invalidated. Mm -hmm. Now, where this survival mindset actually comes in really well, and this was important at the, in the city um, example, but also I think anyone in an innovation group is the greatest founders have usually two attributes. One is they're amazing problem solvers and they're amazing storytellers. You know, they can go out and pitch a vision to raise money, hire people, get customers, and they can build stuff, right? So I think, you know, at, at Citibank, you know, amongst the EIRs, when we would do these innovation, you know, multi-day sessions, or I would coach certain founders, my area of expertise, and we would rotate, was always how to pitch. And some of the elements there are about connecting on an emotional level. I call it entertaining with evidence. You know, you're not just telling a great story, you're also backing it up, but definitely go for the emotional before you go for the logical. Mm -hmm. There's a, something a lot of founders who've raised money understand is when you're raising money from a venture capitalist who inherently is in the job of identifying risk. If you go for the logical part of their brain and say, hey, this is why this is going to work. By nature, they're going to poke holes in your logic. Where if you connect with them on an emotional level and say, this is why it's important. And this actually holds true for digital transformation as well. It's just human nature. The mindset switches from punching holes to filling gaps. And once you make that connection, you know, and this is also no to how. And I think that storytelling and the why behind innovation or digital transformation, if you're that person that's not at a C level and you're trying to get that champion to support you, I think that storytelling and problem solving side of what founders know by nature, I think is very important learning for executives at companies. I love that analogy. We always talk about the fact that, you know, decisions are usually made emotionally and then rationalized logically, you know, and, and also we talk about the most important emotions in, for example, a customer journey and how one of them is fear. And yeah. we, don't, we don't usually create fear in our customers the way we might create other things like confusion or frustration, but they come with fear because anytime we're asking someone to make a commitment, even if it's just pay $50, there's fear. Yeah. Will I get screwed? Is this a mistake? You know, will this be a hassle? So, you know, to the degree that you can create in them an emotional feeling that this will be great, then you get that rational part of the mind. I love what you said, you know, instead of harnessing it to figure out why the answer should be no, you're harnessing that same rational part of the brain to figure out why the answer should be yes. Exactly. And I think that's genius. I love yeah. that. This is fantastic. And I, I could ask you a million more questions about this, but bearing the time, I really want to get to the, what we knew we were going to be the cherry on the top yeah. of our conversation today, which is what's in the top secret briefings that Google has you give to their best clients. And can you give us at least a sampler platter of some of the key insights that you're sharing from Google about how companies can most effectively operate in this changing dynamic landscape, work from home, future of work, all of that. 
Yeah. So there is no secret sauce here. Oh. And <laughs> as I mentioned it, you know, actually, you know no. there is there, there, some, some secret thing. There, there is a secret sauce, but it's a secret we've all known our whole lives. And it took a pandemic to really make it clear is, you know, be human. We're all in this together. We're all humans. Yes, the technology allows us to communicate even when we can't be together in person, but it's still a substitute for interpersonal relationships. And it's lossy, right? Like, you know, I would, I would love to see you, right? I'd love to hug you. I'd love to like, you know, obviously we're still friends, but it, it have a beer. It's different. Cheers and be okay if some of the liquid mixes, you know, like, like it was supposed to be. But um, that just doesn't exist, right? And everyone is struggling, manager, employee, executive, gig worker, and we're in our heads and it's, you're not getting any physical cues or feedback. So you, we have to take that extra step to really be there for each other. So l- let me take a step back and kind of talk through what our point of view is on, you know, the immediate response to the pandemic, uh, the shift to working from home, how to be successful working from home, and then reimagining the future, which I do believe will be some sort of hybrid situation. Yeah. And we have to solve for that, making sure it's equitable and everybody has access. And it's not about being as good as it was before. It's about being better. I don't know if you've ever been to uh, Google offices, but what Google did in the late 90s for physical office space, we now have that opportunity to redo that for the next 50 years. Generations of people working about what work can mean. And that's, that's really powerful stuff. So before I jump to like that opportunity or responsibility, let me start with the simple stuff. First, this is completely unprecedented, right? Nobody in the world has the answer. It hit us. Maybe we knew it was coming, but not like this, right? And the amazing thing is several companies struggled in their transition to home, but they made it work. And all of a sudden they realized maybe it's still duct taped together and VPNs aren't that great. And there's other things that Google has done that companies look to and say, hey, how can we do that? But you know, most of those things we put in place years ago because of how we think and why we do things the way we do. Less so how we do them or what we do them, but why we do them. And that enabled us to fortunately have a relatively seamless transition home. But with that said, even legacy companies, companies that are several hundred years old, made it work. Yeah. Many people got burnt out. I know this to be true for some public sector agencies, but you know, you look at NASA, for example, look how many rockets launched in this pandemic, right? You know, they still made it work. Even if you can try to imagine TV stereotype of the most bureaucratic IT department, they still figured it out. It might not be smooth, but they figured it out. So the nice thing is it opened up our eyes. Okay. Like this is an opportunity to do this right. Now the concern is you may have also fed this to me at some point, several people are probably going to waste this opportunity. Meaning we'll go back to way things were. It is what it is, but several folks will use this opportunity for digital transformation the right way and see it as a way to make things more collaborative, productive, faster, all these things. So there's a few things that we share with the executives. And like I said, it's not going to sound like any sort of secret sauce. It's all about being human and top priority has always been the well-being of our employees, our people. And in the beginning, that meant getting everyone home safe, secure, equipped, connected. And then during the transition to work from home, healthy, happy, productive. And those are very tall orders, right? It's, you know, for a company to actually solve that for people, but that comes with checking in with people, training your managers, recognizing that even if someone's saying everything's fine, it's probably not. Mental health awareness and just doing the best we possibly can to maintain the culture and being there for your people. Again, that's not solved by any means. Now let's move a little bit more over to like productivity. This is another key takeaway. Activity does not equal productivity, right? Activity is a part of it, but so is well-being. 
Mm-hmm. You know, if you see your developers are putting in more code at breakfast or lunch or they're working longer days, that's not telling you how they're doing, right? And because this is so unprecedented, Google has had, you know, decades of research on productivity and employee happiness that, you know, we have these longitudinal studies that we can refer to, but also this is also a bit of a, an anomaly in time, right? So we have to be careful in making any conclusions, but employee well-being is, you know, of the highest importance. Now I'll move forward a little bit into, you know, how do you enhance that productivity using the tools that we have? Can I just make a connection between two things you said? This is fascinating. And I think what you said about startup founders making, you know, 15 critical decisions before breakfast, I think you could argue that in this day and age, many, many types of employees are making maybe not life or death decisions, but a lot of what you're paying your employees for are not just the hours they put in, but the decisions and the choices that they make, whether it's how to program a function within an application or whatever it is. And so that issue of well-being, you know, we talk about productivity in terms of outcome, because clearly that's what a startup founder is measured on, right? Not many hours he worked, but whether he got to that magical line where he could survive and ultimately, you know, grow the company. So I want to just connect that idea that you're talking about well-being with this idea that when you're in a great state, when you're feeling good, when you're feeling happy, healthy, that's when you're more likely to make those great decisions. And when it's the opposite, then you're probably going to make decisions no matter how many hours you put in. Yeah. And, you know, that's a phenomenal point, and it does tie how this enables us to be much stronger in our next iteration. And when I say ours, I don't mean Google, I mean everyone. And this is where I think the importance of the CIO, which is, you know, the area I'm focusing on right now, Chief Information Officer, which means different things at every company. Their role is now front and center, obviously because our technology is how we communicate and how the culture is transmitted but it's also a time for that executive to lead. This is not the CFO, the CTO, even the HRO or, you know, whoever the chief human resources person, and maybe not even the CEO, obviously the CEO has to set the vision and keep everyone, you know, aligned, but could be the digital transformation, the information, the innovation folks that can step up now. First of all, the spotlights on them. So this is their time to shine as the opportunity side, but responsibly their time to lead. Uh, second, it's an opportunity to put things in place that will have long-term benefits. And I really believe that's not a what or a how question. Yeah, you can put automation, artificial intelligence, cloud computing, virtual desktop, zero trust networking, all these things that will make you better for the next pandemic or the next crisis. But I don't think it's about that next crisis. It's about making crisis, managing crisis and operating through crisis part of your norm. And this gets to being a resilient uh, organization where, yeah, you know, the pandemic is a once in a hundred year thing, but being able to respond to these crises, this doesn't mean like panic and hair on fire all the time, but having an organization that's not, you know, there might be minor hiccups here or there, but kind of like how things worked when we went home, weren't the smoothest next time or in a different, more likely unexpected case, your business is continuing operations without skipping a beat. And you can focus on things like employee well-being and making sure they're fine for whatever the situation is. So for example, even in this pandemic, it's not a cookie cutter situation that everyone's going through. You know, some people unfortunately lost loved ones. You know, some people got sick. Whether you have small children at home or you live with five roommates, work from home is not the ideal situation. However, if you're a software engineer, and you know your kids are already adults or self-sufficient or out of the house or you don't have kids it might be phenomenal to work from home there's no you know one answer for everyone yeah very very interesting great 
I know we're just about at the end of our time. Is there any any other final thought, any other kind of tip or Google did something that you'd say everyone should know about and should do that? Or we got some key ideas here, right? The humanity, looking out for people's well-being as much as anything else. Clearly, the whole shift to the cloud. You know, yeah. you talked about how quickly, and I've observed this too, the vast majority of companies were able to make the shift much more rapidly and with much less problem than they anticipated, notwithstanding some people who no doubt worked a lot of long nights and weekends. Uh, and a lot of that, I think, has to do with the cloud because yeah. people already had, obviously, a tool like Zoom, clearly cloud-based and scalable because of the cloud. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, thank God our files were not stored on our desktop computers back at the office kind of thing, you know. Yeah. So many of us had all of our stuff in the cloud and we were already accustomed to that. So the companies that had invested in that generally had an even easier time of it. And those that didn't were usually rushing to try to push that as quickly as possible because, of course, that's what's needed for that kind of location independence. Anyway, you've already given us so much. I feel like I'm greedy. But any before we close, any yeah. final cherry on top? It'll be a real cherry. I'll give you two things, one from a corporate standpoint and one from a startup standpoint. And I want to end this on a, not that this our conversation was negative, but on a positive forward-looking point of view, which is opportunity. This pandemic was horrible, is horrible, and you know we'll get through it. And I wish it had never happened. Of course. But we know certain things to be very true. One is it's times like these where the best innovations come out, right? Google came out of a time like this. Facebook came out of a time like this. Uber came out of a time like this. You know, those next companies are being built right now. Yeah. So, you know, whether you're on the corporate side, working with startups or building something new or you're a startup founder, you're building that next big thing and it's happening right now. And as much as, you know, people might be pulling out or back, this is time to invest. On the corporate side, it's getting back to this concept of this opportunity to reimagine the future. Right. So you brought up uh, video conferencing. There's a couple of things that we can build in as first principles for these products, like equity and access for everyone. You know, video conferencing, whether it was built this way or other new upstarts kind of copied it, was really designed for conference room to conference room communication. And it's great for that. And occasionally, if you were home, you could log in, but you didn't know what the looks people were giving each other or your audio would be messed up. So how do we solve for a video conferencing platform where you have a recurring meeting, three people are in the office, two people aren't, you know, and these are requirements that just, I don't want to say they didn't exist before, but they weren't the primary use case. You're right. And I think it just opens up and you're seeing this, you know, I'll use Google as an example. Just with it, the rate of innovation in our video product, you know, from noise cancellation to using certain elements of AI to, to blend the screen and record. It's just the pace of that was so fast. That might have been in the roadmap, but what happened in 2020 was a catalyst. And I think you're going to see it coming from all over the world now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, what we see is it comes from two angles. It comes from the side you just were talking about, which is the technology. And then it comes from a skill angle, the ability to lead a meeting well via this type of technology is similar in some ways to leading a great meeting in person. And by the way, a lot of meetings in person were led horribly for a long time. Yeah. You know, I know you want to say, and on a positive note, but you know, <laughs> but there's people who do it well and do it poorly, but doing it virtually is 60% different, 40% the same, but 60% different. Yeah. And so gaining those skills, uh, you know, I put out a blog post called, we all need to start thinking like teenage girls. And all I was talking about in it was camera angles, lighting, I mean, teenage girls, who use Instagram all day long, they know where to put the camera. Exactly. They know how to find the light, you know? Yeah. It's almost intuitive to them. But so many of us, you know, older people in business, we never had to think before about where's the light, you know, when, yeah. I, when I'm in a meeting. We never thought about that in an in-person meeting. Where's the light coming from, you know? Yeah. But now you need to think like that. So there's just this set of skills to be able to be a good leader or a good participant through these types of technologies. And just like we all had to learn how to use email 
and it wasn't just about learning where the send button was and not to use all caps, but like what works in email, what doesn't work in email, what should you really pick up the phone and talk to someone about, all these types of skills, the nuances of using email as a communication platform all those years ago. I feel like we're still a little bit nascent in terms of this. So as the platforms evolve, I'm also enthusiastic to see how all of our skills continue to evolve. And hopefully those two things are evolving together. Take something like breakout rooms, you know, most of the platforms are continuing to augment the way breakout rooms work. And as people who are leading meetings get more practiced and realize all the potential of saying, hey, I've got 20 people, then I'm going to break them into teams and I'm going to put them back together. Then it becomes, oh, but uh oh, I can't move someone between breakout groups once the breakout starts. That's not, you know, and so seeing that the use combined with the technology and how they grow together, I think that we have the potential to make these platforms even more powerful to make even better and better experiences, interactions through video conferencing or whatever we're going to call it in the future. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. And, you know, following the lead of teenagers is probably a trend we could have, you know. In many ways. Yeah. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Well, on that note, uh, Tesh, thank you so much for joining us. This has been amazing. Uh, I learned so much. Just uh, I always do, just listening to you talk. But it's awesome. I'm really pleased we're able to open that up to all of our listeners and viewers. And uh, thank you so much for joining. Yeah, great. Thank you for having me. Bye, everybody. Thanks. See you next time.